I invite you to turn in a Bible to Matthew chapter 28. We'll be reading the whole chapter, all 20 verses. All four of the gospel accounts, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the resurrection of Jesus. They record it in different ways. They record it with some different details. But the essentials are there in all of them. All of them testify to the fact that Jesus, who was crucified and who died and was buried, was now alive and is alive forevermore. So I invite you to hear God's word now from Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel... They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." As we begin, let's make some initial observations from the text. There were two women named Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who had witnessed the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus, and they went to the tomb early on Sunday morning. There was a great earthquake for or because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. That's an amazing statement. Because an angel of the Lord descends from heaven, it caused a great earthquake. When I was growing up, our family lived in the flight path of the Strategic Air Command off at Air Force Base outside of Omaha, Nebraska. On many occasions, we would hear sonic booms because of the powerful aircraft flying overhead, breaking the sound barrier. 
But here we have a great earthquake caused by an angel of the Lord descending from heaven. That tells you a little about the power of angelic beings. But there's more. It says his appearance was like lightning, verse 3. Our daughter Mary, who is in Oklahoma, posted a video of a lightning storm this past week on social media. It's incredible to see something like that with one strike rolling after another and another and lighting up the sky from east to west and north to south. If nothing else, reading about this great earthquake and the lightning-like appearance of this angel tells us that angels are very different from the common portrayal as fat, cute babies with wings. Whenever one of these angels appears, the people who see the angel is stricken with fear, and the angel has to say, don't be afraid. When I think of the fat, cute babies with wings, I'm more inclined to laugh than to be afraid. We need to adjust our understanding of angels based on the word of God. Angels are powerful and fearsome creatures. And for when this angel appeared, those guarding the tomb of Jesus trembled and became like dead men. The angel tells the women to not be afraid. The angel does not say this to the guards. He apparently is content to let the guards tremble. This angel had been sent by God to make an announcement, namely that Jesus was risen from the dead and that the disciples would soon see him. And so as the women went, they encountered the risen Lord and they worshiped him. Now it should be striking to our ears to hear about these two women. They're the first ones on the scene after the resurrection. They're the first ones to see the risen Lord Jesus. And so this is telling us something about how Jesus and the Bible view women. In a day when women were viewed as property, the Bible and Jesus are lifting the value of women. Their testimony of the resurrection is recorded in Scripture for us today and for every generation in between. So these women see the risen Lord Jesus and they worship him and he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, stop, that's not right. It's not appropriate. I'm just a man. No, he receives their worship because he's not only fully man, he is fully God. Jesus then tells him to go and to tell his brothers to meet him in Galilee. That's a surprising statement. He refers to the disciples as his brothers, these fearful disciples, one of whom betrayed him, denied him three times, the others who were cowering in fear for what might happen to them, and Jesus calls them brothers. That's good news for us, that we, who are sometimes fearful and who on occasion deny our Lord, can still be viewed by Jesus as brothers or sisters. So while the women were on the way to tell the brothers, the disciples, the chief priests and the elders gather at Jerusalem and in an attempt to prevent people from believing that Jesus is risen from the dead. 
So ignoring the testimony of their own hired guards, they paid these guards to lie and to say that the body of Jesus had been stolen by his disciples. This is blatant evil on the part of the religious leaders. Nevertheless, Jesus was alive and he appeared to his disciples at a mountain in Galilee. This appearance of the risen Jesus met with a response of both worship and doubt. It says it's, they worshiped, but some doubted. And when Jesus opened his mouth to speak, he spoke some amazing words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority has to do with rights. The illustrations I like to use are, if you have a driver's license, you have authority to drive. If you turn 16 and some parents give you keys to a car, which may or may not be a wise thing to do for a 16-year-old, you have power. Once you get in the seat of that car, you have power but if you don't have a driver's license, you have no authority to exercise that power. If you go out in the woods with a gun, you have power. But if you don't have a hunting license, you don't have the authority. You don't have the right to exercise that power. When I was in seminary in Southern California, in Pasadena, we could purchase a parking permit for the campus. And they said it was like, a hunting license. It didn't guarantee you a place, but it gave you the opportunity, the right to hunt. There's a difference between authority and power. Jesus has the ability, the power. He has all ability, all power, but he ha also has all authority. All rights belong to him, both in heaven and on earth. He has rights over all creation. And in that authority, he commands his followers to make disciples of all nations. In other words, he was telling them to reproduce themselves among every ethnic and language group throughout the whole world. And he tells them how to accomplish that mission, namely, by going, as you go, make disciples. And then he goes on to say how to accomplish that mission by baptizing or initiating people into the faith and by teaching them, by equipping them and giving them all that they need to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He does not merely say that he will be with them to the end of the age. He says that he will always be with them. He will never leave them. They will always have his help and support. These disciples had seen Jesus arrested. They had seen him crucified. They were fearful that what had happened to their master and to their Lord and teacher could also happen to them. They were afraid for their very lives. They feared death, their own death. Jesus had been put to death. They were no doubt afraid that they would be put to death as well. But now this Jesus who was dead, is standing before them very much alive, how will they respond? So life and death are at stake in the resurrection of Jesus and in this passage from God's word. So I want us to think about death for a moment. Death is no stranger to any of us. 
Since shortly after creation, people have experienced death. God's people, the first people, Adam and Eve, were warned that if they ate of the uh, forbidden fruit, they would surely die. They ate, and they didn't die immediately, at least physically, but immediately they experienced true death, which is spiritual separation from God. God intended all of us to know life and peace, perfect fellowship with our creator. But since that sin in the garden, there has been a separation made between us and God. Isaiah 59 says it this way, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden your face, have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God. It results in spiritual death. And we have all been impacted by death in one way or another. When I was called to serve as pastor of this church back in 2005, as I considered the makeup of the congregation, I anticipated that I might be officiating at a lot of funerals in a short time. Thankfully, God has continued to give many among us additional years of life, perhaps more than you or I anticipated. And so each of those years, there's been maybe one or two funerals from people of our fellowship, but thankfully not as many as I anticipated. Some lives are surprising. Not only the lives of individuals, but the lives of organizations. The Columbus Blue Jackets hockey team is alive in the playoffs after advancing by winning their first four games from a team that had the best record in all of the regular season. Before the best of seven series started, the local team was written off by many as being as good as dead. Many people said the same thing about Tiger Woods and his golf career. It was over, it was dead, and yet, Last week, he wins the Masters. During the first dozen years that I served as pastor of this church, I'm glad that I did not have the number of funerals that I had anticipated. But in the last couple of years, there's been an uptick in the number of funerals. Not only of those who are beyond three score and 10 or 70 years or four score, 80 years, but even of those who are much younger. I target 70 and 80 because the Bible targets them in Psalm 90, verse 10. It says, the years of our life are threescore and 10, or 70 years, or even by reason of strength, fourscore, 80 years, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. And so we've had lives suddenly snatched away from us through car accidents, and slowly separated from us through the aging process, often leaving spouses alone who've been married for 50 or 60 or years or more. Some of you have had near-death encounters. Your life was hanging by a thread or the life of a loved one, or so it seemed, and yet God did what seemed humanly impossible, and you're with us today, or that person is still alive today. Others are physically healthy, 
but feel dead inside and have little or no desire to live because of the hurt and pain that they've felt in life has just been too much to bear. We have all lost loved ones, and not only the aged. Many here have known the sorrow of a baby lost to miscarriage or a child who died shortly after birth. In a little more than the past year, our own family, both of our married daughters and their families experienced the loss of a baby through miscarriage, and we experienced the grief of burying a little 14-week-old baby from the womb. Not only have there been tiny babies lost to death, but there have been many young people who've been part of our fellowship who've died of various illnesses, leaving their families and loved ones with deep and ongoing grief. But it's not only physical death. Some of you have been regarded as dead, and your life as of no account, no, because you're a follower of Jesus Christ and your family just doesn't get it. They had other plans for you. A number of you here know what it is to be diagnosed with cancer. God has shown great kindness to some who've received that diagnosis and to those of us who love you because after five years, you have been declared free of cancer. But others are still in the midst of that diagnosis or perhaps preparing to deal with it. And in the face of all these things, the risen Lord Jesus says, do not fear the death of the body. In Luke 12, verses 4 through 7, Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Cancer or a car accident or some calamity in the created world may kill the body. But that is all those things can do. They have no authority to cast into hell. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has authority, all authority over death, which is the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Jesus defeated that enemy through his death and resurrection. And not to alarm you, but the Bible says that you and I are dying too. It's not that we've been diagnosed with some rare and incurable disease, but the Bible is clear that these earthly bodies are decaying. Our bodies are subject to decay. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 and following, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
And Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to talk about our bodies as a tent. Some of you are campers and you know what tent camping is like. You get a tent outside and you get out in the rain and you pack it up when it's slightly damp and it doesn't smell so great and it can start to deteriorate the next time you go out camping. You maybe don't want to use that tent. 2 Corinthians 5 says, We know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, our bodies, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Last year, I had a birthday that resulted in my age ending in zero. No, not that one. I'm not that old. But those of you who are thinking 40, you're much too kind. It's not just humans created in God's image who are subject to decay. In fact, all of creation groans. Romans 8 tells us this. Verses 22 and 23 For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we all long for the restoration and the renewal that God has promised. And into this longing, Jesus appears as the focal point of history. Jesus Christ is the focal point of history. History is his story. If you go anywhere in the world, people refer to the date the same way, and they'll tell you this year is 2019. Today's date and every date calls to mind the coming of Jesus Christ into the world when God himself took on flesh and became man. Imagine demanding a reset to the calendar year based on the year of your birth. Which of us would do that? Ah, We're going to change the year. It's no longer 2019. We're going to start dating from the year of my birth, whether that was, for some of you, 1940 or 1976 or 1993. That would be preposterous for any of us to suggest that. But Jesus is the focal point of history, and all of our calendars give evidence of that. And so since Jesus is the focal point of history, it should come as no surprise that Jesus is the focal point of this week that we refer to as Holy Week or Passion Week. And beginning last Sunday, we considered the expectation of the Christ. On Wednesday, after the Passover meal, we considered the redemption of the Christ. On Friday... Good Friday, we considered the crucifixion or the sacrifice of the Christ, and today we turn our attention to the resurrection of the Christ. Because Jesus is the focal point of history, we must consider all of those things from a perspective of Jesus. And this Christ that we speak about is not a generic God, but the Jesus of history. We sang a song this morning that was titled, Jesus Christ is Risen Today. 
Some of you may have grown up in a different church tradition and you may have grown up singing Christ the Lord is risen today. Same tune, some different lyrics, but it's basically the same song. But we have chosen to sing Jesus Christ is risen today because we want to be specific that the Christ that we're worshiping is Jesus the historical person of Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again. It's not some spiritual cosmic Christ who has no relation to this person of history known as Jesus of Nazareth. There are some in certain traditions who would like to make that distinction and say it doesn't really matter if this man Jesus rose from the dead. His disciples believed it, and that's all that matters. No, the Bible says Jesus is the Christ, the risen Lord. But when we come to the resurrection of Christ, there have been different attempts to deny that resurrection. Now, the one thing that virtually no one denies is that the tomb was empty. If there was a body in the tomb... That would be the end of the discussion. No one would be saying Jesus is risen from the dead. If somebody could produce the body of Jesus, there would be no claim to a resurrection. And so there have been put forth different theories for why the tomb may have been empty by those who don't want to recognize Jesus as risen from the dead. And in con to those theories to explain away the empty tomb, there has arisen apologetics, which is putting forth a defense of the faith. And so one of the suggestions, it's not really an explanation for the empty tomb, but just the fact of whether or not Jesus died on the cross, is some have suggested it wasn't really Jesus who was on the cross, that there was a substitute or an imposter who was placed there at the last moment. Many Muslims will tell you this, that Jesus didn't die on the cross. It was someone who looked like him, that God sent someone as a substitute at the last moment. Now, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were witnesses to the crucifixion. My mom is the mother of twins, My brother Dan and I can look at photos from our childhood, and even if we could not tell who was who in those photos, my mom always could. She always knew. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were witnesses to the crucifixion. They knew whether this person who was on the cross was really Jesus or not. The next theory that's put forth is that Jesus didn't really die. He only fainted on the cross. This is known as the swoon theory. So Jesus didn't really die. He appeared to be close to death. He was weak, certainly. He was taken to the tomb, and in the coolness of the tomb, his body revived, and he pushed the stone away, this incredibly heavy stone, and he went out and convinced his disciples that he was risen from the dead. Now, if you can believe that, that takes more faith than believing in a risen Lord. The people in the ancient world knew death. 
They, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were witnesses when the body of Jesus was removed from the cross. They saw him buried. Joseph of Arimathea, this rich man, came and took the body of Jesus and buried it in a fresh-hewn tomb. People in the ancient world were familiar with death. They saw it up close. It was not hidden behind the closed doors of a funeral home. They knew what death looked like, and they would not be fooled into thinking that someone was dead if that person was still alive. Besides, it's really far-fetched to believe that someone who was beaten the way Jesus was had a crown of thorns pressed onto his head who was too weak to carry his own cross and then nailed to that cross and left to hang there for hours, then had a spear poked into his side, suddenly revived in the coolness of the tomb and convinced his followers that he was risen from the dead. Not likely. Another explanation has been that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. But again, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary saw where Jesus was buried. They were watching when Joseph of Arimathea took the body and placed it into this tomb. This tomb was not the common kind that was dug in the ground and lined with rocks. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, the Bible says. He had this tomb hewn out of the rock And it was not your everyday, ordinary tomb of the day, so its location and appearance would have been remembered by the women. This tomb was not like some of the cemeteries around here that have nearly identical grave markers, and you go in them and you think, where am I going to find the grave that I'm looking for? Another theory that's put forward is that the disciples were hallucinating. They so badly wanted Jesus to be risen from the dead that they imagined that he was. You could perhaps suggest that was the case if only one person claimed to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. But the Bible tells us he appeared to more than 500. There's no such thing as mass hallucinations. The next theory that's put forth is that the disciples were lying. That there was a conspiracy involved. Some here are conspiracy theorists. You'd like a good conspiracy as much as anybody. But who is willing to die for a lie? These disciples that were accused of creating a conspiracy and lying about the resurrection of Jesus, they were willing to die for that. Chuck Colson, who was known as President Richard Nixon's hatchet man, said this, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The final lie is the one that the chief priests and the elders put forth, that the body of Jesus was stolen. This is perhaps the most preposterous because if the guards had fallen asleep and the body had been stolen, they would have been put to death for dereliction of duty. They would not have been out spreading the story that, yeah, while we were guarding the tomb, somebody stole the body. Moreover, no one, not even the opponents of Jesus, denied that the tomb was empty. All anyone had to do to deny the resurrection was to produce the body, but no one did and no one has And so the evidence is that Jesus is alive. He is risen from the dead. And there are implications 
of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ shows that he is God. And therefore we are to worship him with great joy. Duncan Garetta was a seminary classmate of mine and a leader in the church of Malawi. He was married to a woman named Mercy and they had two sweet little girls named Faith and Patience. The Garetta family was part of the same church with us in Pasadena, California, Knox Presbyterian Church, which was comprised largely of retired Presbyterian pastors and missionaries and their families. Another classmate of mine characterized the congregation as the Blue Rinse crowd because many of the older ladies had a slight bluish cast to their gray or white hair. When we left seminary, we moved to Ohio and Duncan and his family returned to Malawi. And when I learned sometime later that Duncan had died unexpectedly, I was heartbroken for his family and wondered how the church in Malawi would go on without its, his leadership. But I was reminded of the promise of Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of Hades, that's the place of the dead, will not overpower it. And my favorite memory of Duncan Goretta was when he stood up in front of this congregation, which was largely elderly, and with the exception of a few seminary students and a few students from Caltech. And Duncan wanted to encourage us to experience the joy of the Lord in worship, and so he said this, Shake a little bit, you won't break. The implication was this. If you go to the Rose Bowl down the street in Pasadena and clap and shout and jump and scream and holler for your favorite team in some victory that has no eternal significance, how much more are we to fully enter in to worship the God who in Christ won the eternal victory over sin and death and the grave? And that doesn't only apply to Pasadena and the Rose Bowl. It would apply to the horseshoe or the big house or the football stadium in Lincoln, Nebraska or in Morgantown, West Virginia, as well as the ice rink at Nationwide Arena and the basketball court at the Schottenstein Center or any other sporting event or concert venue where we might be tempted to worship someone or something other than King Jesus. So one implication of the resurrection of Christ is that we're to worship our Lord, our risen Lord, with great joy. We see the, word, the great joy in verse 8 of Matthew 28 and worship in verse 17. In Philippians 2, Paul talked about the coming of Jesus to earth, that he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first implication of the resurrection is that we're to worship the Lord with great joy. The price of our salvation has been paid in full. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins with his own life. And his resurrection is like a receipt that shows that it's been paid for. Jesus bought eternal life for all who trust him. That's what he purchased on the cross, eternal life for all who will trust him. Now, since Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, not to worship the risen Christ is an act of treason against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Jesus has the right to tell every person on the face of the planet what to think and feel and say and do. And to ignore him or to rebel against him is high treason. That's why the Bible calls us to repent and believe. And when the Bible calls us to repent, it's not talking about our remembering every single sin that we've ever committed and confessing it and doing penance, as it were, as if we could earn acceptance from God. Rather, it's talking about turning away from self-reliance and turning away from self-righteousness, turning away from any attempt to earn acceptance from God or earn approval with God and instead receive the gift of God in Christ that is offered freely to all who trust him. To repent is to feel a sorrow in our hearts that we have ignored God and belittled God and preferred other things to God. Jesus says, all authority on earth, in heaven and on earth is mine. So on earth, that means that his authority extends to every area of our life. Your sexuality is his to rule. Your business is his to rule. Your career is his to rule. Your home is his. Your children are his. Your vacation is his. Your body is his. He is God. He has authority over politics and government. He has authority over all armies and military might. He has authority over all industry and business, over the NASDAQ and the Dow Jones. He has authority over science and education, all research and discovery and university and colleges. He has authority over all entertainment and media, radio, TV, magazines, newspapers, internet, theater, art. He has authority over all sports and leisure. He has authority over all natural phenomena, He has authority over our lives, health and disease and success and failure and life and death. Because Jesus rose from the dead, trusting him and following him as Lord is more important than anything else in this world. So therefore, we must repent and trust and treasure Jesus Christ. And a final implication from this text is that Jesus has all authority and therefore has the authority to commission us, to give us a mission. Specifically, he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He calls us to make disciples And that's much more than simply helping someone intellectually understand that heaven is better than hell. It's helping them to embrace Jesus by faith in every area of life for all of their life. Back in April of 2000, World Magazine reported that three children were killed in Bosnia when they wandered into a minefield. One of them, an 11-year-old girl, called for help for hours before she died, but no one would go into the minefield to help her. What would you have done? What would I have done? Could it be that this is why Jesus told us that all authority is his and that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age, so that we would go and risk our lives for the sake of love? 
Perhaps it means among the Karanko people of Sierra Leone. Perhaps it means going to Indian neighbors who are worshiping at Sri Sai Baba Temple down the road or the Jain Temple farther down the road. Jesus calls us to make disciples of all nations, and he's not limiting this to political states. And that's just outrageous. It was then, and in our relativistic, multicultural, all religions are equal age, it's perhaps even more so. Go and tell all the religions of the world that Jesus is the only way to God, that only Jesus can forgive sins against the creator. Only Jesus can provide righteousness before the holy judge. Only Jesus can give you eternal life. Go tell them that. This will get you killed in some places. And here it will get you ridiculed as arrogant and ignorant and intolerant and dangerous. But Jesus promises, I will be with you. I have all authority and I will be with you. So even if you're going out into a minefield, he has authority over where your feet fall. And even if you step on a mine and your earthly life comes to an end, he will be with you always. So who is God calling us to reach? Our neighbors and our nations. And what will we do by God's grace to reach them? Perhaps it means inviting your neighbors over, picking out a neighbor and inviting them over once a month to set a goal for your household to invite unbelieving neighbors over so that you can build relationships for the sake of the gospel and share this good news of Jesus. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He promises to be with us always to the end of the age. We cannot fail in the mission that he has given us. So worship him with great joy and take the glorious good news of the gospel of this risen Lord to all ethnic and language groups with the goal of helping them to become followers of Jesus with us.